Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Zimbabwe's response to the COVID-19 outbreak has been irresponsible and full of hostility towards the international community. What's the appropriate response to the government's petulant behavior? And President Conde of Guinea decided to hold his controversial referendum despite a COVID-19 outbreak in his country. What lessons can we draw from Guinea about the continent's very busy election calendar during a pandemic? Plus, we discuss the popularity and power of political satire in sub-Saharan Africa. Should U.S. diplomats try their hand at comedy? What are the risks? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. President Emerson and Mnangagwa's supporters are working overtime, outrageously claiming that the COVID-19 outbreak is God's way of punishing the United States and other Western countries for imposing sanctions. After doing some extensive research, our government has finally found what causes the COVID-19 virus. Sanctions. Yes, Defense Minister Opa Munchinguri says Corona is attacking Western countries because they put sanctions on Zimbabwe. Its supporters are also alleging that the U.S. ambassador to Zimbabwe is involved in corruption. What does Zimbabwe's wild accusations say about the government's grip on power? Joining me today to discuss Zimbabwe is Bruce Wharton, former U.S. ambassador to Zimbabwe, James Wan, editor of African Arguments, Nkeche Nwabudike, graduate student at the University of Southern California and former head producer of The Other News, a satirical news program in Nigeria. This is our sixth episode in partnership with African Arguments. For our listeners, African Arguments is a pan-African platform for news, investigation, and opinions. Just a quick reminder to our listeners, we are recording this episode remotely for health and safety reasons. We apologize in advance for any sound quality. Also, news is moving really fast right now, so a few things may have changed since the taping of the show. Okay, Bruce, let's start with your assessment on the current government. How do we think about these comments that they're making? They're, I mean, particularly inappropriate, insensitive. What's going on? Look, I think the embassy's response to those comments was absolutely brilliant. They uh, provided nearly $500,000 in direct assistance for Zimbabwe's efforts to fight the COVID-19 virus. The truth is, those of us who've been working on Zimbabwe for a long time are fairly used to this sort of outrageous stuff. I think that Zimbabwe has a long tradition of delusional or magical realism, going all the way back to Cecil Rhodes and the idea of the Cape to Cairo empire. And then, of course, Ian Smith and the black majority rule would never happen for a thousand years. So there's a lot of tradition there. Zimbabwe's economy, they've tried to make up an economy that does not connect with the rest of the world. In fact, when I was ambassador there, one of Mugabe's propagandists recommended that that I have my liver taken out and have it roasted on the banks of the Mukulisi River. I think that all of this demonstrates two things. First, this sort of magical realism that seems to pervade Zimbabwean history and politics. And secondly, a government that is desperate for figuring out how to deflect blame and try to pin problems on outsiders rather than assuming responsibility itself. So it's sort of a situation normal in Zimbabwe, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, as you said, there's this long history of really insensitive, inappropriate, outlandish comments from the government as they try to deflect. But we're 
In the midst of a real crisis, James, at least at the time of this recording, we've had at least one confirmed case of coronavirus, and the government's imposed restrictions, but the president, I don't, he doesn't seem to think they apply to him. In fact, he traveled to Namibia uh, to attend the swearing-in of President Gengab, actually a ceremony where there has been some concerns that coronavirus has been transmitted in that session. Uh, his, the president of Botswana, Eric Masisi, actually is now a self-imposed quarantine because he attended that event. So how do we think Zimbabwe is going to be able to handle a surge in cases, which inevitably will come when they're kind of half-heartedly imposing these restrictions? Yeah, I think Zimbabwe and unfortunately a lot of African countries are really going to struggle with the coronavirus crisis. I mean, to take Zimbabwe specifically, you know, even before this, it was facing a lot of very serious challenges, hyperinflation of economic crisis, widespread power cuts, food shortages. So it's dealing with this crisis at a bad time anyway, but I think it's also going to be particularly vulnerable. You know, it's got a weak health sector, Doctors were on strike for about four months until January over low salaries and poor working conditions. And some doctors and nurses walked out, I think, yesterday or or the day before because of a lack of protective equipment. According to a piece in African Arguments, Zimbabwe only has, I think, 16 ventilators across the country. And there are over a million people with HIV who are going to be particularly vulnerable. I mean, one advantage that I think Africa generally has is that a lot of other countries around the world have already provided some examples of what is necessary and what works, but also plenty of cautionary tales of what not to do. I mean, again, unfortunately, I think one of the lessons from that is that what's required is things like decisive leadership, clear dissemination of trustworthy information and technocratic competence, unfortunately, none of which the Zimbabwean government is particularly well known for. I think one thing that's important to note is that, you know, Zimbabwe's concerns are really a concern for the whole world. You know, if we're talking about a virus that can spread from one person in one country to half a million people in virtually every single country in the world in the span of about three months, then this is a, you know, this global pandemic will only be over when it's over for the whole world. So, you know, if coronavirus really does take hold in Zimbabwe or Africa more more broadly, you know, that's a problem that the world will have to worry about and help solve, not just in the interests of solidarity, but because of just pure self-interest. I'm so glad you said that. You know, lately, it just seems like each country, particularly in, in the West, has been focused on its own response rather than making the connections that what happens in Zimbabwe or Mauritius or anywhere else in the world will affect them. And, you know, I was pleased to see some of the response from the G20 and from the IMF and the World Bank, some of our global institutions. But uh, we still have to break out of this, I think, policy silo where we where we think about how do we address our countries first and then move to the global problems, because I don't think that's going to protect us. It has to be holistic. Bruce, you mentioned earlier about the right response from the U.S. uh, to Zimbabwe, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. You know, you had in your very storied career responsibility for public diplomacy. What other kind of messages should we be giving at this juncture to talk about how the U.S. is engaging and helping African partners to deal with these problems around COVID-19? Well, I I think James said it very well. Self-interest is at stake here. I I like the term enlightened self-interest. I think that's one of the finest motivators of human behavior I can think of. And if there's a reservoir of a disease anywhere in the world, then then we're all vulnerable to that. 
You know, I know from conversations with colleagues who are still in Africa serving in embassies that the first order of business has been to support American citizens and try to help those people either get home or, or be safe where they are. I would urge my colleagues, as soon as they can catch their breath and do their work to take care of American citizens, to think about how we let Africans and the rest of the world know that this is a shared problem, a shared crisis, and that the United States is doing everything that we know how to do. But we're going to need better partners than uh, Opa Muchinguri and Edi Menangagwa. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm positive that we will come back to Zimbabwe in a further episode, both to talk about its political and economic crisis, but also how the, the health issues around COVID-19 is affecting that country. I'd like to move to our second topic, which is Guinea. And President Conde, on March 22nd, he decided to proceed with his controversial referendum that was going to allow him to run for a third term. Surrounded by security forces, the 82-year-old president walked to a voting center seemingly unfazed by months of criticism and the threat of the new coronavirus. You know, he had delayed this vote twice, but he decided to go forward no matter what, despite the fact that the regional body ECOWAS and La Francophonie had objections and that they had two confirmed cases of COVID-19. There were no witnesses, no international or regional observers because of challenges with the voter rolls, but also because of COVID-19. There was violence on the day of the election, and then subsequently there's been violence. And I wanted to bring this up because, James, we have a lot of elections left in this calendar year. If you include the legislative election in Mali that's supposed to happen this weekend, there's 17 presidential, legislative, and municipal elections planned for this year. How do we think about both the trade-offs between public health and then also democracy? What are the risks in, in cases where leaders may want to use the delay or proceed with the vote to benefit themselves politically? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue. How do we reconcile these you know, different imperatives around health and democracy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really good question and feeds into a much broader aspect of coronavirus that isn't getting too much attention yet, but I think we'll get more and more with time, which is the political fallout. You know, we've been talking about health and economics, but I think the political repercussions of this situation will be really huge, particularly particularly in Africa, I think. You know, I can think of two kind of aspects of this. I think one is just the direct effects that the disease will have on specific individuals in power. You know, I don't want to be too morbid or sensationalist, but, you know, as you mentioned with Mnangagwa and Gangob, like, they were in contact, it sounds like, with the virus. And, you know, the British prime minister has it. Bihari's top aide has it. The first death in Africa was of a senior politician, Burkina Faso. So political elites will catch it. And, you know, we all know in Africa, like, politicians are old. The average age of politicians is 65. A lot of presidents are in their 70s or 80s. And they're not going to be able to fly to Europe or Asia to get treatment in the same way they could before. But more to your point, I think the second way in which this will play out is that it will affect politics in a more indirect way. So moments of uncertainty, of change, of chaos can always be exploited and taken advantage of. And I think we'll see this in many parts of Africa, especially, I suppose, where political systems are already quite volatile and changeable. 
I think it will be very difficult to predict and to work out exactly who is going to manage to take advantage of the situation. You know, will governments with authoritarian tendencies like Guinea take the opportunity to further entrench their powers and avoid scrutiny? Could the crisis get so bad in some places that it will delegitimize governments even more in the eyes of people and bolster anti-government sentiment and movements? Also, you know, if governments are going to be taking quite drastic measures, reallocating resources, imposing lockdowns, closing borders, there's also the possibility that new precedents will be set that can't be unset and that will kind of fundamentally change people's relationships with and expectations of their governments. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned that I wanted to to build on is that there's a high potential for political paralysis in a couple of these countries in part because many leaders are, as you said, over 65 or have pre-existing health conditions. But in other cases, just because so many people need to self-isolate. In Ketchi, in your country, Nigeria, the governors of Akiti, Edo, Bauchi, and Niger State are all self-isolating. The vice president, Osimbajo, is self-isolating. The president's chief of staff, Abakiari, has coronavirus. And the governor of Bauchi has coronavirus. That's why he's in self-quarantine. So you've got a lot of the political elite, you know, on the sidelines right now. What do you do when you've got the government, you know, on bed rest? And then I have, you know, your country in particular has dealt with elections being delayed in the past. And maybe some thoughts uh, from you on what is the best way a government can manage an election during a pandemic or, or in a delay? You're completely right. We have a long history of delaying elections, but not for health reasons. Usually it's, it's you know, to make sure people are not disenfranchised. That's the reason we're given. In the last three election circles, elections have been postponed. So I think half of the, maybe not half, but a significant number of Nigerian politicians right now are either self-isolating or already have coronavirus. There's not a lot of trust in the system. So when Nigerians are told things like Abakiari has coronavirus, they just assume that a lot more people have it and not are not sane. It just takes us back to the time when President Umaru Musa Yaradwa was in power and he had a health condition and that was hidden. So there's a lot of rumors going around that President Buhari has coronavirus. In fact, there was a an unfortunate voice note that made the rounds a couple of days ago saying the president was trying to sneak out of the country to get treated elsewhere because of the state of the health facilities at home. We're definitely living in interesting times, that's for sure, because nobody really knows anything about how all of this will play out. We have Governor Baseki of Edo State self-isolating because he's been exposed. And there's rumors and accusations and counter-accusations and party statements and opposition party statements. Everybody trying to figure out what their angle in this is, because it's, it's a situation where if you don't know what's going to happen, if you're a politician in Africa, you try to position yourself to take the most advantage of the ensuing chaos. I think James is right when he says leadership in Africa is going to be severely impacted by the coronavirus, probably more impacted than you would find in Western countries because we don't really have institutions in place yet to ensure that things like this don't happen. It's unprecedented. It's never happened before. So we had a sitting president for ill, and that was a whole constitutional issue for two weeks, but we've never had a situation where a huge number of the leading politicians have to sort of take themselves away from the politics now to focus on their health. We don't even know if they have enough 
in place to ensure that they can actually do their jobs from self-quarantine and self-isolation. And it doesn't help that these people are not communicating with the citizenry they're supposed to be leading. That's exactly where I wanted us to land because this is about communication. And, you know, you went through the the electoral history of Nigeria in the Fourth Republic with lots of delays. And I think the delays that were accepted by the public, as we say, the, the battlefield was prepared. The public understood why there was a delay and it was well communicated. In cases where that doesn't happen, it leads itself to rumors and finger pointing and and suspicion. And the fact that President Buhari really hasn't addressed the nation, I think increasingly he's one of the few African leaders that have really not had a conversation with the public about it is really, I think, adding to the sense of panic and apprehension in Nigeria. But Bruce, you know, I'm going to ask you again to help us think through the international role here. Is it useful to do to counsel uh, governments on communication strategies and and on this bigger question that, that James and I were talking about earlier about what is the reason and motivation behind these delays? I mean, it seems like a really fraught area for the U.S. or other international partners to wade into to assume that we understand the intentions of these different decisions. Yeah, I think you make a great point. Look, I think that the international community needs to continue to work in coordination with each other. But I'm uncomfortable with the idea that the international community is going to tell African leaders what they need to do next. I'd much rather see African voices uh, offering those sorts of suggestions and recommendations. I think we can continue to provide humanitarian assistance and other assistance, and we can certainly attach some conditions to that sort of assistance. But fundamentally, I think we need for Africans to lead whatever reform happens. That includes civil society organizations like Afrobarometer, the media, academia, and the business community. But let me ask an uncomfortable question, which is whether or not a country with an autocratic or authoritarian government may not be better situated to deal with a public health crisis like COVID-19. I think about Rwanda, it's going to be fascinating to see how Paul Kagame manages this pandemic. And it's tempting to make comparisons between the way China dealt with something and the way uh, an autocratic African government might deal with this. I'm so glad you asked that. That's such an important conversation that I think some people are having out loud and some people are thinking, and I want to make sure that James and Nkeche can share their thoughts. But for me, the country to watch is South Africa. Yes, they have the highest caseload of coronavirus at this point, about a thousand cases at the time of the recording. But I've been really impressed with President Ramaphosa. First, reaches out across the aisle to the EFF, to the DA, and talks about a unified response. I think he's been very good at leveraging religious leaders. South Africa has a layered challenge in terms of inequality amongst its people, in terms of access to facilities and information. But, you know, I'm hoping that South Africa wins on this one and shows us that a democracy can manage this quite well. South Korea is certainly doing that. And I think that it doesn't get enough attention in terms of their response. James and Keche, have you been thinking about Bruce's question? Yeah, I have been thinking about it. I think it comes down to an issue of competence more than just, you know, democratic institutions and democratic governments. I don't know of any dictatorship in Africa that compares in terms of sheer competence and what it can achieve with China's less than democratic government. 
So it's not just a matter of being a strong man. It's a matter of what you're able to achieve with your government and with the institutions you put in place. And history suggests that none of Africa's strong men, maybe with the possible exception of Paul Kagame in Rwanda, but history suggests that they are not in a position to leverage all their power for the good of the people. And maybe that's probably because they're not in power because of the people. So I don't see a situation where an African strong man or an African dictator is better positioned than a somewhat more democratic government to handle the pandemic. The problem, though, is that even democratic governments are not also, at least in Africa, even the democratically elected governments for all their flaws are also not in a position to efficiently handle pandemic either. So for me, it doesn't really, I mean, it's important to think about where we will be after all of this is over if we're still here. But it's also a matter of competence. And from antecedents, there's really none. Yeah, I would agree with that last point. I don't think there's any particular theoretical reason to expect that authoritarian governments or democracies are inherently better placed to deal with this. I think there are other issues that are perhaps more important, such as, yeah, just like competence, technocratic competence, the ability to listen to scientific experts and follow their advice to look at other countries and follow their examples, government capacity, and I suppose just kind of acting in the public interest. Also just the trust of governments. You know, if you have a democratic government that is trusted by the people and they are shown to take action that's in the interests of the wider public and they say, stay at home, wash your hands, don't go out, then you don't need the military on the street to police that. If you don't have that, then you do need the military on the, on, on the streets to police that. And I think you're right that we talk about China, but I think South Korea, the way that they've dealt with it has been impressive. And I think just, you know, comparing those two situations suggests that there's, you know, there's nothing inherent about the structure of the state that means that, you know, authoritarian governments or democracies are inherently better placed to deal with this. Let's move on to our, our final topic, uh, our paradigm for today. And I've been really excited about this topic. I've been waiting for the right moment. And so I'm so glad that we have the right people here to talk about the role of satire in African media and politics. Just recently, enjoying my, my own stay at home, I finished uh, L. Nathan John's book, Becoming Nigerian, A Guide. And uh, he has this opening where he says, never, ever explain satire, but we're going to break his rule. So I want to start with a clip uh, from Nkechi's show, The Other News, and this is from May 2018. Former chairman of the Independent National Electoral Commission, Professor Atairu Jiga, has accused Nigeria's federal legislators of having a culture of demanding bribes. Well, uh, denying Professor Jiga's allegations, some of the legislators said, Jiga, we will not take it. We will not take it, oh. Um, unless it is in $100 bills stuffed in Ghana must go bags or wired to an account that the EFCC cannot trace. And Keche, can you share a little bit about the show's origins, sensibilities, and objectives? The other news is the brainchild of an American Media for Change group, Pilot Media Initiatives, and a Nigerian media mogul, Channels TV. And Channels TV's chairman was very interested in satire, in the idea of creating a political satire show. As a country, Nigeria is very big on comedy. We love it. We consume it. It's probably the most consumed genre of anything 
we've been ripe for a news and political satire show for a while. In fact, if I remember correctly, when, when I was growing up, Nigeria used to pride itself on being the happiest country in the world. Like you would hear things about how, what would cause a, an insurrection or a revolution or a crisis in another country happens like twice a week in Nigeria and we'll just smile about it. So we have a long history of reacting to these things comedically. So I think Channels TV and PMI decided that you know, everyone is a huge fan of John Stewart, right? So they decided to try and put together a show that would educate and inform. That's really what gave birth to the other news. I joined the team in its very early days. What we wanted to do was create a comedy show that found a lighthearted way to get Nigerians to just confront their everyday reality and, and confront the things that we all wanted to change in the system. Just find a way to just get people to shake up the system, to just entertain people. But beyond that, just get as many people as possible to drop their complacency and get involved, get involved in, in politics, get informed. We had an episode when we asked people to call their legislators, which is something that almost never happens in Nigeria. So that's that's kind of the things we wanted to do with that show. Did they do it? Did they yes, call they the did. legislator? They did. It was quite interesting. We had people who would call their legislator and then send us like a tweet or send us a message on Facebook telling us how that went. That's really cool. James, you've done a, a similar thing uh, on African Arguments. Now you have a, a satirical section called From the Withole Countries. And you've written something on BP, your deputy editor, Deji Rotinwa, who's also been on our podcast, tackled the UK-Africa Investment Summit and recasting it as Boris Johnson's plea for the former colonies to come to the aid of the UK. Can you talk a little bit about what you were trying to achieve with that series? Does it match what Nkeche is talking about with the other news? Yeah, to an extent, definitely. I mean, first, I should give credit to Ayodeji, who's kind of the driving force behind it. But I think we both really liked the idea of a, of a satire section for a, for a couple of reasons. I think, firstly, it's just a bit more fun than our usual coverage. But secondly, I think, you know, for me, satire really allows you to tell a story or make a point in a way that just kind of plain factual reporting or opinion pieces or analysis can't. You know, there are standards and norms to how we report the news that have a lot of benefits, but I think there are also kind of limitations to it and that sometimes to really take stock of an issue, particularly like a, a big and complex one, it really helps to see it through a fresh lens. And I think that's something that satire, like maybe art and music and literature can do and you know in our description of the section we we say it's the news but absurd that it's sometimes better than the real thing sometimes not quite real and sometimes much more real and for me it's that sometimes much more real that interests me like you know you mentioned the piece on bp and its announcement that it wants to be carbon zero by 2050 and I remember when that announcement was made, I had some kind of really surprising and interesting conversations with people where I was, you know, I was trying to put BP's announcement in the context that, you know, scientists say that the real battle against climate change will be won by 2030, not by 2050, that scientists say no credible plan to tackle the climate breakdown includes burning and discovering new oil reserves, yet BP is still planning to spend untold billions on that. And that even if their plan was sufficient, that BP's CEO himself 
said that we should see it as an ambition rather than a natural roadmap with measurable targets. And it was partly, you know, my inability to really get this message across that led us to publish that piece on BP that was eventually titled BP Praise for Ambition to Destroy Africa, but potentially a bit more slowly. And I, I don't know if that was any more persuasive to people, but I think at least in principle, satire, if it's if it's done well, allows you to put things in a different kind of context that normal reporting can struggle to. And, you know, as we say in the description, it can simultaneously be not quite real, but also much more real than the actual news. That's why we use comedy. We use it to interpret, you know, events that are happening. I mean, we look towards our comedians sometimes to help us think through these you know, new developments. And I mentioned earlier that, that Bruce is one of his last gigs at the State Department was to be the undersecretary for public diplomacy and public affairs. That essentially meant that you oversaw the department's public outreach and press strategies. And I guess the question for you is, can diplomats be funny? Should they? I mean, how do you, think... <laughs> how do you, how do you find that balance? How do you be engaging with it without, you know, misrepresenting the United States? Could you go on a show like in Keche's The Other News? Like, what's the risk calculation that a U.S. official or an ambassador should weigh? I think American diplomats are often very funny, but it's usually not intentional. I'm leery of humor as a diplomatic tool. I love creativity. I like energy. I like new approaches, new ideas. But humor can be pretty dangerous ground. First of all, humor doesn't always translate well from one language into another or from one culture into another. Secondly, I think humor is, is messenger dependent. There are jokes that a Nigerian might be able to tell about Nigeria, but if I told that joke about Nigeria, it would be offensive. And I think it takes a special person to be able to overcome the dangers inherent in mixing humor and diplomacy. As you probably know very well, my own experience with this relates to many years ago when I was the embassy press officer in Bolivia, and I was leading, holding a press conference on a somewhat contentious issue. And one of the journalists in the, in the room asked me a question that I thought was just absurd. And so I responded with, yeah, right, and Elvis Presley is alive and well in rural Bolivia. Well, the next day, the newspaper headline was, U.S. Embassy confirms Elvis Presley alive and well in Bolivia. So <laughs> I was somewhat uh, chagrined by that. And at that point, determined that I would use humor in small settings. You know, it's part of relationship building, which I think is essential to successful diplomacy. But I would try to avoid jokes or broad humor in any sort of a public setting. And Keche, does that sound right to you? I mean, what would you want from engagement from diplomats? I mean, there's this long history of joking relationships in African societies, but as Bruce said, it's very hard for a foreigner to try to partake, particularly in a public way. Yeah, I sort of agree with pretty much everything Bruce said. A lot of comedy doesn't travel. The reason for that is most comedy is cultural. The idea of comedy is very international, but the execution has to be local because there are, there are certain things that there's nuance to it, there's subtext, and it's very difficult to sort of explain all of that in one go to a person who's not familiar with the culture. Diplomats partaking in joking relationships is it's very tricky. I think it can be done, but it needs to be done sparingly. It needs to be done with understanding of local culture and probably with a local guide while we're at it. I think if, if diplomats were to keep in mind that even lighthearted engagement is part of a culture which they are not 
part of. I think they probably could find a way around it. And this conversation reminds me a little bit of this other piece on African arguments by Jess Arbach that's writing about that kind of country in a time of coronavirus. First of all, this is something that I've been struggling with is, is as I talk about coronavirus in, in Africa, making sure that I get the right tone about sort of the risks and challenges, but also the opportunities. And it just has this line that she says, it's essential that writing on Africa focuses on beauty, success, dignity, love, life, hope, drama, laughter, and perhaps the occasional soap opera. And I thought, James, you could expound a little bit on, on what that means for all of us, those of us who are African and non-African who write and think about Africa, particularly in this day and age. Hmm. Yeah, I I think what I what I got most from, from Jess's piece was that emphasis and the need to recognize and reflect the whole spectrum of experiences, of lived experiences on the continent. You know, in that piece, she points out that all around, all around the world, we're all basically doing the same thing. We're all trying to make our friends laugh. We're all trying to, you know, worry about our loved ones or trying to work out what outfit we look best in. But so often, if you look at the international coverage, that depth of life, that sometimes prosaic, mundane, humorous reality of life just isn't, isn't affected equally around the world. Like some countries are seen as places where people are living their lives. But a lot of other places, particularly in Africa, are seen as, as places where, you know, people are just surviving or suffering or where life happens to people. And one of the points she makes is that, you know, this has real effects on how people see other people in the world. And that has knock on effects for international politics, for foreign policies, for the global distribution of resources, for, you know, what global issues are seen as priorities, whose humanity counts, who's seen, who matters. And yeah, I think at this particular time of global crisis, these questions will be especially pertinent. And I think for those of us writing about and thinking about Africa, it will be more important than ever to, to reflect that depth and breadth of life on the continent. And in the case of African arguments, you know, and the way we operate, that primarily means following the lead of our writers and our readers on the continent. Yeah, it's something that I, you know, we at CSIS have a policy focus, but we've been trying to think through all the different facets of the COVID-19 crisis and to do a little bit what Jess is, is suggesting to show the full experience. And we've launched a couple of things, video content, so that we can provide more voices from the continent to share their experiences and how they've been thinking about these, these key issues. I wanted to give Nketiah the last word. In 2018, you told The New Yorker that you aren't against starting a crisis, just not in the first episode. And then, you know, even today you said, you know, the goal was to drop their complacency, to drop, get Nigerians to drop their complacency. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what is your, uh, how do you grade yourself? What's the scorecard you would give your contributions to the show? There's such a rich tradition of satire and mocking leadership in Nigeria. I, I, I have to give a shout out also to uh, Ogus at the Top uh, by uh, Tolu Ogunisa. He, he now works for President Buhari, but if you've ever seen this show, uh, it's a, a puppet show that's really good as well in terms of calling out Nigerian politicians for inconsistencies or, or other sorts of um, issues. But I guess I wanted to know how you think your show fits into that legacy and you know, what is the way forward for satire in Nigeria? 
Okay, that's a bunch of questions. I'll start with the starting the crisis thing because that comment has been tossed in my face so many times since 2018. So we did not start a crisis. I'm very, I grade myself very harshly, but I would have liked to start a crisis, I think. I would have liked to have people just watch one episode and be so fired up that they would demand a change. So on that note, I don't think we probably struck as, as high as we could have gone, but I do think we achieved a lot. We definitely got a lot of people talking about stuff. We even had politicians steal our jokes. We got a larger demographic of people talking about issues. I think for me, one of the highlights of my entire The Other News experience is when a primary school child watched the show and wrote us a letter about how he, he always made, to made sure he watched the show every Thursday and now he was getting so much from it because those are the kind of people that at the end of the day, right, these are people who can change the system. So I like to think we've, we've planted a seed somewhere. Nigeria has a very rich history of, I guess, court jesters and, and comedians in general just being the only ones who are allowed to mock the system. So I think we fit very nicely into that. Interestingly enough, one of the writers from Augas at the Top ended up being one of our head writers at some point during the show. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I think I think we sort of took the torch and pushed it a bit forward. So I think satire in Nigeria is just, it's just the beginning, really. I feel like in the next, especially given everything that is happening in Nigeria right now, I think I feel like it's an art form that hasn't reached its peak format in Nigeria yet. I think it's only going to grow because comedians have a certain level of insulation from the repercussions, I guess, of speaking truth to power than journalists do, especially in Nigeria. It's it's easier to for politicians to write off, oh, he's just a comedian, he's just a funny man. So it's safer, I guess, for comedians. To the best of my knowledge, no comedian has been disappeared yet. That might happen, but it hasn't happened yet. The other news is the first satire show on primetime TV, but there's a bunch of really, really cool satire shows on YouTube and on like places that are not completely censored by the government. So I feel like just by having it on channels TV, having it on uh, one of the biggest networks that is dedicated to news, we prove that it could be done. So I think we, we actually did something really cool, and I feel like it's, it's just the beginning. The world of satire in Nigeria is going to exp- explode. I think that's a great, a great way to end the show. And you know, I, I know that the art form is going to continue to deepen and grow, and that's great. All right, well, let me thank everyone for joining us, and we'll see uh, you in two weeks. Take care. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.